Hello, I'm Alex Garcia, and this is the Hurricane Center Podcast. It's made possible by USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, the Weather Company, and the Weather Boy. We talk about hurricanes, research, recovery, resilience, and a lot more. If this is your first time with us, hit that subscribe button. And now, let's get to it. Thanks for the tropical update there, Bill. Exciting to see some of these storms and uh, see what may develop. Well, I'm excited to introduce Dr. Ian Giamaco. He's the lead research meteorology and senior director for standards and analytics at the, um, I'm sorry, at the IBHS Research Center in Richburg, South Carolina. Dr. Giamaco holds a BS in atmospheric science from the University of Louisiana at Monroe and an MS and PhD from Texas Tech University in atmospheric science and wind science and engineering, respectively. Dr. Giamaco's responsibilities at IBHS include developing the new IBHS standards and data analytics team and serving as a lead research meteorologist helping guide applied research. From 2019 to 2022, Dr. Jamico helped build and lead the IBHS product development team. He provides leadership in disaster data analytics, science communication, applied meteorology research, and instrumentation design and data collection. Dr. Jamico has nearly two decades of meteorological field research experience. He currently serves as the principal investigator and field coordinator for the IBHS Characteristics of Hailstorms annual field research campaign. He has participated in numerous hurricane, severe thunderstorm, and tornado research projects over his career. He and the IBHS team became the first to publish results quantifying the strength of hailstones, pioneered the use of 3D laser scanning technology to create digital models of hailstones, and developed the IBHS hail impact test protocol and asphalt shingle impact rating systems. Really exciting stuff. This is all really applied to the built environment. I'm excited to see more about this this interview. And finally, the, the last part of the introduction here, In addition to his position at IBHS, he is currently appointed as an adjunct faculty research associate at the National Wind Institute at Texas Tech University. He was a charter member of the American Meteorological Society's Committee on Weather and Climate Financial Risk Management, served on the National Weather Association's Publications Committee, and currently is serving on the AMS Committee on Engineering Resilient Communities. Really excited to have you on the show here today, Ian. I'll I'll turn it over to you. Uh, I can't wait to see your presentation. Thanks, Al. Thanks for having me. And, and yeah, all, all that stuff. It's been a fun. It's been a fun ride at IBHS. Uh, it's, it was my first job right out of graduate school from Texas Tech. And um, one of the favorite things that you mentioned, I get to sit right at the intersection of severe weather and the built environment. So uh, we're going to have a bit of a, a kind of a discussion today. We'll bring in Bill Reed here in a little bit. Uh, but I'll tell you about uh, IBHS in general. And I've got just a couple of little slides, and we're going to we're going to work our way from who we are at IBHS. And then we're going to get to the built environment and how we actually build our communities of tomorrow and what building codes, what the, what's the role they play in reducing the damage, disruption, and displacement that comes from what we're going to talk about today is tropical cyclones, so landfalling tropical cyclones and how they impact our communities. Uh, so a little bit about IBHS in general, and I'll go ahead and just put up a, a little bit of a graphic to, to show uh, what, what we do and the, the things we study at IBHS is... Uh, we're charged with really understanding 
the built environment and how it intersects with severe weather. Um, the perils we've been charged with studying are, are windstorms, and you can lump severe convective storms, tornadoes, hurricanes all together there. The aspects of wind-driven rain uh, that do affect the building envelope. Uh, hail, how mentioned my background, a lot of my research work explicitly at IBHS has been in the hail peril. My graduate work is in a, a lot of uh, hurricane boundary layer wind profiles and understanding tropical cyclones. And then wildfires. Uh, we know that's a growing threat, especially after the 2017-2018 wildfire seasons in the West. That's a threat that's, that's really just punched us right in the gut here over the past you know, five, six, seven years, uh, even, even longer. Uh, and it's emerging that we need to, to also view the built environment and wildfires in a similar way to which we look at some of these other perils. Uh, so that's, that's who and what we study, who we are. We are a nonprofit. Uh, you can think of us very similar to the Institute for, Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. They crash test cars. Well, our job is to crash test buildings, building components against these severe weather hazards. We are funded through the property insurance industry. They pay a set of dues. That's where our funding comes from. But we also do projects really with a uh, wide range of collaborators. We like to, to kind of think of ourselves as a bit of a center of gravity between the private sector, the federal agencies, uh, and all the stakeholders that deal with, with these type of hazards and how they affect us, meaning our homes and businesses. So uh, we've done work with the United States Forest Service on wildfire. I've done work with NIST in, uh, in Maryland, the National uh, Institute for Standards and Technology. Of course, partnering at times with NOAA, those kinds of things uh, all across the board with the sole goal to really reduce uh, the damage, loss, disruption, displacement that we unfortunately see over and over again in the United States when we're looking in the aftermath of severe weather. Um, so let's start the discussion. I'll take us through just a little bit of kind of background information on how we understand the building code environment. And I'll turn it over to Bill. We'll have a little bit more back and forth and, and, and go from there and bring in Hal and everybody. And we can, we can talk some more about this. Um, so if we look at building codes, uh, one of the best ways we know of right now uh, is a way to reduce that damage aspect that comes with really all forms of severe weather. You can lump in tornadoes to this as well, is a strong, updated, modern building code. And what I mean by modern is really looking post-2000. There was a lot of wind provisions and things that came about after Hurricane Andrew 30 years ago, uh, and back basically a couple weeks ago or, or last week. Um, changed the wind engineering world and the building code environment. So a lot of actual positives came out of a very big negative from a code perspective. But when we think about modern building codes and taking into account um, severe weather and severe weather hazards, we're really looking at those that were put in place about the year 2000 and after. Now you may think we got an awful lot of buildings out there that that were built before that. Yeah, yeah we know. Um, and that is a, a problem that we'll, we'll talk more about. But what's happened over the last 22 years is the codes have really taken advantage of great science and brought that into the practical element of, of building codes. Um, these are our model codes, the International Code Council is the body that, that oversees those and states and local jurisdictions can either adopt pieces and parts or not. Um, the thing that we do notice is that those states that have a statewide code is not only adopted, keeping up with the modern advances, but well enforced. It was one of the big problems after Hurricane Andrew was the lack of enforcement of what Florida thought was a pretty good code. There were some other errors, errors there, but that's what they were struggling with. So if, if you look here, and there's a the FEMA statistic that's somewhere between 35 and 40% of all code jurisdictions, that's all we have that have adopted a modern code. It's not even 50%. 
which is remarkable across the United States, that we have an awful lot of work to do. But if you look at the map here, this is kind of what shows you that the dark blues are states that have an enforced statewide building code. Uh, Louisiana's came about after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Of course, Florida's had theirs for a while and now really does lead the way in terms of wind mitigation from the Florida building code. It, it, we'll get to our rating the state's program in a minute, but it comes in number one. Surprising number two that you might not think about is Virginia. They have a very good code there. South Carolina and North Carolina have made some recent advances over the last decade that have really strengthened their building code. But if we look across the middle of the country that deals with severe convective storms too, or take Texas for an example that deals with all of it, they haven't adopted code, but they do not enforce it. It's all held at the local jurisdiction level. And what the problem with that is, and, and usually the argument you hear is, oh, you know, the weather's different, the hazards are different. Well, yes, but what that causes is variance in the codes across a region. We're now builders, inspectors, and all these people are having to keep up with multiple different entities, multiple different versions of the code, all being lumped into the same general geographic area. That was one of the kind of secondary problems that came out of Florida after Hurricane Andrew was that builders actually got to pick which code cycle they used. So how do you enforce that? How do you even look at that? You don't even know for sure which one that was being used. So you ran into all this just mess that was going on. But what we found, and Florida's been leading the way here, when Hurricane Charlie in 04 impacted Port Charlotte, Punta Gorda, the, the modern code built structures, the performance was so glaringly different in terms of the positive for those built under the new code. It just was just right there hanging in your face, like, ooh, we're onto something here. We're taking the best engineering, we're putting it into practice and code, we're reducing loss, reducing the number of people who have to be out of their homes. Uh, and this is a good path forward. Now you see the other states with the statewide codes there. It, it, and we're starting to see this now across the board where you see this glaring performance difference between homes built in one era versus those built under the modern code jurisdictions. And I think that's just gonna grow over time. So one of the ways we look at this at IBHS is to actually look at our rating, we call it our rating the states program. Uh, we've done our fourth edition, it comes out every three years, this is 2021, it coincides with the building code cycle is every three years. So we can look at how we're doing across our hurricane prone states. What we do is actually score a state's uh, building code adoption. They have the latest code. Uh, their enforcement and administration of that. So they do they have an enforcement program that makes sure these codes are being put into practice and done when structures are built or retrofitted. Keep that in mind too. That code provisions, while we think of new builds off the top, it's very important that the enforcement parts are also included for anything basically you have to build that you have to pull a permit so that those are covered there. And then contractor licensing and training, which is where a lot of states have a lot of work to do, where you can have uh, your landscaper all of a sudden show up as your roofer the next day if you had some wind damage and, and that presents its own challenges there. Um, so here's how things shook out back in uh, 2021 as we look across all the hurricane states here. Uh, these are the rankings and we score them on a 100 point scale. 50% uh, is in that code adoption space. And then those other two categories are scored at 25% or 25 point totals. So we do weight the adoption of those modern codes at the top. Uh, so there's what it looks like, Florida, Florida and Virginia, number one and two, you kind of 
I guess Florida's like Alabama in college football, or I mean, I really want to say LSU is a Louisiana native, but we all know their problems. Um, so you could, you could, in a few years ago, you could look at it as Alabama and Clemson, that's Florida and Virginia. Uh, but right there, uh, South Carolina, number three, they've done some great things to, to up their code uh, over the past really five, six, seven years. North Carolina also shown some improvement, got into the top 10 in the 2021 cycle. But you see some problematic states there, Texas, big one. Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, who, again, their first major hurricane since what the 1890s happened to come from the, the south, not the, the coastal side, if you want to look at Michael that way, and had a tremendous amount of damage, even in inland Georgia. Um, and then moving up the coast and all the way up into New England, which has to deal with, with the, the nor'easter element and synoptic wind events. But that's the picture of building codes across the 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 landscape of our hurricane coastline. Now, I want to point out very briefly, and Bill and I will probably talk about this a little bit more. In coastal Alabama, Mobile and Baldwin counties actually, uh, many years ago now, have codified IBHS's fortified building standard, which is an enhanced building code meant to reduce damage and, and all, this, all the things we've just been talking about. Uh, and that's actually codified. And there's a great stat now that it's almost 20% of all single family homes now in those two counties have a fortified designation, which means they have the certificate and it was evaluated and inspected for. That's incredible over really the past, you can look at the past eight, nine years. Um, and it's one of the biggest windstorm resilient success stories in the United States. And it played out in Hurricane Sally with a uh, general about a 30% or so reduction in the claims frequency with a reduction of the claims amount, it did the trick kept people in their houses, kept the water intrusion down, the wind-driven rain problem out, and basically put a stop to structural damage, at least in that event. Um, so one of those success stories. But here's the whole the whole gamut just in a bar chart form. You can see the range of, of performances. You got a slug of goods, you got some really bads in there. Uh, if, if you wanna look at this, this is code adoption. So at that 50 point scale, if you're above 40, you're doing okay. That's pretty good. Uh, anything 30 and below, you got some problems there. Um, but that's what that looks like across our hurricane prone states. Um, so that's just a little nugget of how we look at building codes. And I'm gonna stop sharing my screen now um, and, and take us back and I'll turn things back over to Bill and we'll start a bit of a discussion on um, what do we do really in, in stopping the cycle of damage and, and disruption displacement that we see time and time again. And, and what are kind of the mindsets of people? So well, I'm gonna send it over to Bill and we'll, we'll sit here and talk for a little while and um, hopefully give everyone out there some new insights into uh, the things we can do, the things we know to do, the things we have good engineering and science behind and what maybe we don't know yet. Yeah, I, I want to hear your thoughts on one of the, my, my observations, uh, and it's not just on building codes, other aspects of preparedness is that unfortunately most of the good codes for at the local level happen after they've had a catastrophic event. And then as time goes on, uh, the, the support for those better codes tends to erode and they get pressure to, to change them. I, I, I think I heard from the flash folks at our conference last year that Florida at a state level had actually taken some steps back from the great code they had developed. But I think Miami-Dade is not. I think it's held its own. Uh, how do we beat that? <laughs> yeah, so so Bill, th this is one of the big challenges that we face in the, the resilience movement. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, the sealed roof deck got put into the International Residential Code this past year, and Connecticut had already wanted to take it out. Just, we're not gonna do it. And the, one of the arguments you hear is cost. No, 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 no. The, the cost elements here are 
easily within the real estate market fluctuations. And if you look at this over the, you know, amortize over a mortgage, but it's the upfront. And I know as someone who just built a new home, I know the upfront costs and it, it, it is in your face. But the problem is we're communicating it like that as opposed to, hey, you're gonna make up this, this difference really, really fast as your home appreciates, that kind of stuff. Um, it, it, Massachusetts, another example, they wanted to remove the windborne debris provisions altogether. Um, and take out some of the impact resistant requirements and that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh no, we're really going backwards. Uh, from Florida State, they, they, they have fluctuated over the years of us doing rating the states with some of those. And a lot of it has to do in how they handle some of the product approval pieces within the Florida building code. And that leads to them kind of waffling a little bit. Um, again, we, we don't want to see anybody weaken a code that that's, you know, we advocate for, for stronger building codes and a lot of our time spending our codes and standards world is trying to stop the, the things Bill is talking about from happening. Um, the, unfortunately, as humans, we have really, really bad memories. Um, you will see the, the response after event. Alabama is a great example have hung on. After the 04, 05 seasons, it was a lot of near misses. Plus, you had Dennis in there. Um, There's kind of a surprise. Ivan 04, we know that one. And then the near miss, you know, Katrina still caused a lot of storm surge damage. It was kind of just a near miss there. But they realized with the insurance market the way it was, they had to do something to one, reduce the risk for their population, and two, maintain a good private insurance market. And that's what you got. They actually took our fortified standard, put it into practice. Luckily, so far, there's been very little efforts to change that. Um, but you see it across other states where you have this, when you go a good eight, nine, 10 years of no landfalls or no major events, everybody acts, ah, we're, we're good, we're good. Well, no, codes are building the communities of tomorrow and handling the retrofits on the older building site that we know is vulnerable, the most vulnerable. But I don't have an answer in terms of the human behavioral element to try to short circuit that. And, and that's the problem. And then what we do is we, we get another event comes along and I was like, ah, we shouldn't have done that. Um, another, I mean, one of the glaring examples, uh, Moore, Oklahoma, it is the only community in the country with enhanced building code meant for tornado protection. It took how many violent tornadoes in a short period of time to do that? Three, basically. Yeah. And finally something got done. And I you're talking to the city manager, um, Every single year has an effort to, to weaken it. Every single year that they go without a major tornado. And then, you know, it's coming again. Yeah. And, um, I think, so, so, one of the communications role for us but is to highlight the success stories. So, yeah, I'll turn it back over yeah, to you. Yeah, I think the, the lightning in a bottle uh, that we've caught in Alabama is there's a major builder down there that's totally into it. Yeah, and, that's that's one of the huge and, things. Well, is and, he can, he, and, and his company does a great job of of exposing the uh, falsehoods and the cost aspect of it. Yeah, I think that's that's a key thing. And here's here's what happened too. You had you had the state legislature pass some legislation that that helped on the the insurance discount side of things. That was a market signal to the builders. Then you had a few of the local code jurisdictions. I think Orange Orange was one of the the first to really adopt that coastal code supplement, put it into practice, getting the fortified standard in place. That's another signal to builders. So you had the, the classic like technology thing where you had the early adopters. I think about like, I'm gonna date myself to when like iPods came out. Uh, you had the early adopters that started grabbing them and we're gonna do this. 
And then all of a sudden the, the, the curve starts to head into the exponential realm and you had a big builder pick it up and say, this is coming, we're gonna do this. And then off it went. And then, then you're in that really nice growth range. We've seen the same thing in North Carolina that the um, NCIUA, the, the, the state um, wind pool there has, has had a magical grant program that has short circuited some of that and got the demand going again. With the roofers involved, they're the ones making the sale bringing in not only the safety aspect, the insurance savings and debunking the cost myths all at the same time. And it, it's amazing that it does work. Um, it's a, those two places are a great model. Uh, we're starting to see some really good movement on the multifamily development side, very similar in, in South Louisiana. And that makes me very proud as a Louisiana resident and a state that oftentimes is looked at as, as being far too reactive or basically we're just sitting on our hands. Um, so that's been kind of nice to see, and I hope that that continues. Yes, yeah, I think it's almost the opposite here. It, here in my part of Texas, the, the multifamily buildings look horrible by comparison to the, the what's being done in the single family. Uh, I, I was intrigued by your map of, of rating the states. What's wrong with Delaware? They're, they're almost as bad as Texas. <laughs> De Delaware likes to play the we're very small card. So they, they, they let it trickle down to the local jurisdictions. But again, like I'll give you an example. What happens there, you can have a, a, a town center that has a very, very good code. But the immediate areas that now fall out of that town's jurisdiction have no code. So you, go, you can go from really you know great code into nothing very quickly, a very kind of concerning point is there are parts of Sugarland, Texas, one of the fastest growing suburbs in the United States that fell into that um, before town, you know, places within it were incorporated and had a code put in place. So you're, you're flipping a coin that those homes were built to some degree of standard with, with some degree of enforcement. And that's really scary. And, and unfortunately, the tornadoes are the thing that really show this like right in our face, where you look at subcode construction when an event happens and you're just left scratching your head. I go from really sad to really angry in a very short period of time once we start looking at the damage and you see homes that were built even subcode. Um, a, a, a positive example, uh, Kentucky during the Mayfield tornado, Kentucky has a very old building stock which is very vulnerable but they do have a statewide code. Some of the homes built under the modern code in, in Bowling Green perform well from a life safety perspective. We, we want the failure to be from the top down, roof down, not walls out. Walls out equals everything's collapsing on occupants. And we saw that the, the modern code, while there was a lot of damage, it actually did work in its life safety element. The problem is they have an, a very old built building stock. And you saw some of the results of that looking just at the damage from that December tornado outbreak. Wow. So I'm just flipping hazards here just as an example uh, of what what the, what the landscape looks like. It, this is, it just clicked on a new question I came up with uh, on that. I, I know that the, uh, the move towards impact resistant glass is taking hold quite nicely here in the hurricane zone. Uh, do, uh, do you guys recommend that for the, the, uh, the rest of the country? Because what you said, if, you, if your windows the tornado, there's a lot of debris, your window is going to come in if it is an impact resistant. Yeah, that's why it's in our fortified standard. It's up at the gold level and it, wow. opening protection. I'm just I'm going to talk about opening protection. That's windows, doors, garage doors. You want to take a bite at an inland tornado wind damage, wind rated garage door like they have in South Florida, 
and impact-resistant glazing. You're going to stop the EF1-2 internal pressurization problem that comes with those openings being either a garage door fails that. We see constantly the Nashville tornado. It was just an entire block, garage door in, roof deck off, garage door in, roof deck off. And it, you sit there and you're like, we know what to do. The science and engineering has caught up and has been caught up and we just can't get it to go. I know like more in more Oklahoma, it's one of the few places you can get a wind rated garage door that's not on the coast. If we can take that stuff and move it inland, we can really do a job. But there, there's a human perception element here. And, and you guys all know this on this call. Hurricanes, we, we've long known that there's stuff we can do, right? You grow up learning about boarding up your windows stocking up your water in your eyes, all that stuff that people tell you to do. Pick up your outdoor furniture. Go do something. It's going to help. Tornadoes, all the social science world, there's a different visualization. They strike an immense amount of fear. There's a concept that they're mile-wide bulldozers and that they're all the same. Look at the even the more tornado. You're looking at the, the if you try to break it down by damage zone, the square mileage of EF4 to 5 is like, 0.001 square miles. Most of that is damage. The rest of it is damage we can deal with. We can do something about. But it's getting that. It's taking some of the things we've learned in hurricanes, right? The success stories and moving them elsewhere. I know we've got into severe storms, so I hope everybody's kind of enjoying this conversation out there about a little more than hurricanes. But the same elements apply. We need to learn those, take those lessons learned and move them elsewhere where we deal with this kind of uh, damage and, and disruption uh, side of things. Yeah. What, I, what have you guys learned about the uh, uh, roofing materials and how to make them uh, resistant to the hurricane or tornado for that matter. Yeah, one of, one of the biggest problems we face is the performance of asphalt shingles. Um, we have, I have an asphalt shingle on my roof. Um, what we're starting to understand is, is these type of, just all asphalt shingles across the board from a wind perspective, their biggest vulnerability is that the sealants actually become unsealed. Um, these are the, the strips of essentially that, that black tarry stuff that holds the tabs down. I'll put my hands up if y'all can see like that. Uh, one tab up here, one, there's a sealant right down here and holds them down. And the problem is over time as, as shingles age and weather, that sealant begins to lose its grip. Whether that's either a nail pop that pushes itself up through the roof deck or just the expansion and contraction because these things heat up a lot. They cool off very fast. They're kind of like a black body if you want to bring in some uh, radiation elements to electromagnetic stuff into this. Um, and that's a big vulnerability because a single shingle that's unsealed now induces a vulnerability for the ones around it. Basically, that shingle comes up in the wind. It takes the rest of them with it, and you see this kind of unzipping pattern, and off they go. And we're talking about failures in sub-design winds. Um, we've been looking at this from Hurricane Laura, and you had something over 90% of, of roofs um, that were older than 10 years had 25% had roof cover damage. Um, it was almost a certainty. If you had a 10-year-old roof or older, you were going to have roof damage. That probably, one, meant you're going to need to file an insurance claim. Two, you had the potential for water entry. And if water comes in your roof, you're talking about gut jobs on drywall and all the stuff that comes with it. That's a times 10 damage amplifier. So there's a lot there and we do not have the answer where you're starting to hone in on what the problem was. 
So for the past decade, really two decades, manufacturers focused on the nails, the nailing pattern, the fasteners, thinking that that was the problem, not realizing that it was actually the sealant that was coming unglued. The shingles fail, take a bunch with it. And once you've started it, Bill, Bill, you know better than anybody, it's a cascade of damage. Once it starts, it's just gonna go, especially in a hurricane event that's gonna last 12, 18, 24 hours. It just unzips and comes apart. We see the same thing in tornadoes. It is from our IBHS perspective, the biggest research problem that we face is the wind performance of, of shingles. Well, I, that's first I heard that the, the I, 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 I got into this when the, the, the new kind of nailing uh, procedures was the, the uh, golden cure for the roof problem. That's kind of disappointing. Uh, it, was, it was something like 18 different standardized test changes over 20 some odd years all focused on installation. So ease of installation and the fastening pattern. Now, the fasteners do, do help. The problem was the sealants are the first problem. So you were solving a problem down the chain. Right now, we're not even getting to the point where the fasteners can take the load. The, the sealant pops, the tabs come up, they either pull through the nails or the, the shingle mat has to take all that wind load and just tears apart. Um, and we are really, struggling to get that performance to, to last. We, you you want to have a roof system that lasts, but there's a concept that that's, you're kind of bouncing around. If you're looking at shingles, does it become more like, I got to change the oil in my car or I'm changing my tires? We, the concept of expendable roof cover is very foreign to me, um, but it, you start to wonder, like if we can't raise the bar um, and this is something, you know, maybe we can, I, I don't know. We, we, we've, I'll give a pat on the back to IBHS. We've done it for hail um, in some of the impact rated roofing products. Manufacturers, when we put out our test uh, impact test protocol and rating system, we saw the bar come up. Saw some products removed from the marketplace. Some were discontinued. New ones were added that perform. Do we see it? Will we see it here? Let's see how fast it goes. This is all pretty new stuff. Um, but now we at least know what the problem is. It can uh, hopefully start to tackle it. But, but that's a really big one. Um, yeah, it's pretty expensive to be replacing roof every five years or so just to make it more resistant. Yeah, it, 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 my, my aunt and uncle in, in Louisville, Louisiana, had to deal with this from Hurricane Ida. Um, I happened to be able to get to their house shortly thereafter with the Texas Tech field team. They had about 25% roof cover loss, but there was enough water intrusion. They didn't, didn't have a sealed roof deck that, that they had to gut. The entire interior of their house. I have a, a wonderful, I say a wonderful picture, but a picture that tells the story. Uh, it's my cousin Olivia hauling a, a handful of old wood flooring out of their house. Her back turned, she's walking out the garage door. And I was like, you, man, you don't have a picture that captures that damage, disruption, and displacement element better than that. Um, and it just made me sad that, you know, I know countless people over the years have dealt with that. And now I was helping my family through the same thing. Tim, I, I bet you got some questions coming in there that uh, and I don't want to hog all the conversation. <laughs> we, we do, and I, we want to take a moment and mention our sponsors once again, USAA, the South Potterham Convention, and Visitors Bureau in particular. Thank you for all they do to make this uh, program a reality. We appreciate that very much. We are getting some, some uh, good comments and questions. Let me share a couple of them, and then uh, uh, we'll get back to you guys asking your uh, your great questions as well. Tim Marshall comments that uh, a handful of builders, you know, use the we build better theme for a competitive reason. You know, they say, hey, we built better and, and use it as, as something to want people to buy their homes. Yeah, that's a great comment from Tim. And that's when, when builders start to make that 
a message. It does sink in because it's repeated, right? That's their job is marketing. And they're trying to set themselves apart from their competition. And we've seen North Carolina, some of the roofers there have done that masterfully working with realtors and the insurance industry and all the folks that want to take advantage of some of the grants to get a fortified roof or some of the endorsements that insurers offer, those kinds of things. And it has been masterful. So it is a way for a contractor to set themselves apart, especially in their local community. And, and yeah, we, we've seen that now and it's a good model. So hopefully this this momentum, this this kind of network starts to, to spread and, and do its thing. And, and Tim knows, Tim, Tim's been around and seen, seen probably more than a lot of most of us sitting here uh, on this side of things. Yeah, Tim Marshall firsthand in, in, in going into storm surveys right after the storm, so he appreciates it. Thanks, Tim, for the, for the question. Um, from the National Weather Service in Brownsville asking if there's any specific support either in the Infrastructure uh, Act or the Inflation Reduction Act for funding for improved building codes, especially for lower and lower middle class communities that are most at risk for windstorm damage. So that, that's a thing specifically, and I'll let Bill or maybe Hal jump in that. I, I, I don't know specifically what the funding notice is. I know that's a, a big, building codes themselves is a big push, not only from FEMA, but the Biden administration in general. Um, I will comment a little bit on the momentum in South Louisiana on the multifamily housing. So it's a lot of affordable housing apartments are starting to head that way. And some of that did come out of different um, federal and state funding programs, which is wonderful to see, but it's the same part, right? We, we inject the dollars, we get the builders involved, that starts that 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 cycle that we want to happen. Um, but we do know we, we've got to address the affordable housing issue um, and multifamily from a resilient construction. I, I also want to note that the Habitat Strong program is a shining example of that. Uh, I have a picture from, from Panama City of a habitat home after Hurricane Michael. And if you just look at that house, you would not have thought there was a, a very strong hurricane uh, that impacted that community. And you take the wide angle, there's homes with full roof system failures, wall collapses. Um, and uh, it, it, to me, that family could go right back into that house the next day. You know, yeah, I know the power, the infrastructure problem, um, but from a keeping a family in their home, it absolutely did the trick. It was actually amazing to see Couple more, then I'll get Hal and Bill back in here. Um, Christopher wants to know a uh, very practical question. What are some of the lower cost ways to protect my home if my state doesn't have good building codes? So a great time to do that is actually the re-roofing time. Um, if you look at a fortified roof system, the additions you would need to make, and this is the best retrofit you can do, is the addition of ring shank nails on the roof deck. The sealed roof deck, there's multiple ways to do that. You can tape the seams in the plywood or not, or you can do um, the peel and stick or the fully adhered or multiple layers of the, the heavier duty underlayment. There's a couple of different ways. Um, and then there's some edge details about sealing down the edge, the edges of shingles, which is a vulnerable spot from a wind load perspective. That adds about somewhere in the six to 13% or so of your roofing cost. My, my parents did it in Baton Rouge and their cost estimate actually came in under mine. Um, which was pretty impressive. So it's not a, it, you're adding 1,500 square foot roof, you're adding 800 to $1,000 ish. If you get up into 3,000 square foot, might be two or $3,000 extra onto that. Reroofing's a good time. Um, some really little things to do is sealing cracks and gaps around your window and door frames. That's a really simple one uh, to help try to stop some of that water intrusion. Um, mentioned that all the time. Um, and that's that's one of those good little things um, that you can do around your home. And then window window door protection. 
Um, and even if you got to go to plywood in a big event, the plywood's certainly going to do um, a decent job. Of course, you know the best option is the good rated shutter systems, but um, keep the keep the building envelope intact. That's what you're after. But in terms of getting over, if you, you think your area doesn't have great codes and you're worried about that, when you re-roof, it's a great time. Take that step um, and talk to some folks. Even if even if you're not after a designation, um, my dad just walked the roofer through some of our training videos, and, and sure enough, he had actually taken a course through one of the manufacturers and was like, yeah, oh, yeah, I can do that. But he had to get to, like, his third roofer. Um, we shop around everything these days, y'all. Shop around your roof. Please do that. Uh, one more from online. Good, good answer. And Casper wants to know metal roof, shingle roof. How do they compare longevity and you know and, and performance? So we're seeing rapid growth in, in metal roofing. It, it eclipsed ten percent of all new roofing sales about uh, five or six years ago in terms of the marketplace. A well-installed metal roof will perform. We actually were talking about this from a research perspective the other day. What can we do to look at metal roof cover performance? Installation is trickier, but right now the performance we see for asphalt shingles is, is generally poor in wind events. Um, if you start looking at typical wind gusts, you probably see if you're impacted in the Saffir-Simpson kind of two, three. I hate really throwing the, the rating out there, but once you get over 90, 100 mile an hour type gusts, if you got an older roof that's seven, eight, nine, ten years old, you're gonna have damage. Um, that performance is not good. So at this point, it, it, you know, so you're looking at a well-installed metal roof. We've seen great performance: Hurricane Michael, Hurricane Harvey, um, and Irma in, in South Florida. Um, it's gonna offer you something. It is gonna be higher in cost. That's the one thing. But you've seen the market grow. I think people are really starting to get tired of dealing with roof damage, especially in places that deal with frequent hurricanes and frequent hailstorms in, in the, the center of the country. I think people are just, it's become a nuisance. It's become a problem. And that's why you've seen the metal market share really grow. I've, I've noticed that just me personally, just driving around. People, they just want a roof that's gonna last a while. Dr. Hal, jump in. You've been sitting quietly and patiently with your list of questions. So get in there. And you were talking about codes and code enforcement. A lot of times in the coastal communities, we see these elevated houses and we're, we know that they have to build to say 12 feet, but then all of a sudden you see a whole bunch of them with lower enclosures. Is the concept there that people build to the standard, it's inspected, and then after that inspection happens, they often put the man cave downstairs with the TV and, and build in? And, and then how is that not flagged. I mean, it seems like a lot of these communities have tons of lower enclosures. Is that a problem for themselves and also for their neighbors? If you get a big storm surge or, or especially a flood event with moving water that can move that debris into their neighbor's houses, is it a problem? So, so one of those, in a lot of those coastal communities, you'll see that those are breakaway wall systems that are meant to fail. Um, people do use those as space because it's, oh, this this won't happen, or I don't have to worry about it for a while, and I'm gonna use that space beneath. And those are typically wall systems that will break away um, with the flow of water. But the problem is you have all that loss, that contents and debris, how you mentioned the debris element, you have introduced debris. Now there's another angle of this, if you have a community that doesn't require the permitting of that, that can be built without having to go through another inspection process. That's what I mean. We often think of codes as the new build element, but there's provisions. We actually account for this in the rating of the state's program is, does it mean the retrofits, meaning when you have to pull a permit, does it have to come up to the current code standard? And that's a big point score. There's some states that are you know, lose 10, 12, 15 points simply because of that. And that's a concern on the issue that you bring up. 
that if maybe that wasn't designed with a breakaway wall system, you now put a whole bunch of stuff down there and you have all that, you know, one that loss, that debris then goes wherever the water is going to take it, which could be into the next house on the next row, could be somewhere else. Um, and that's that's kind of the holistic concern there from a, from a coastal construction perspective. Thanks, Dr. Ian, another question. I hear people talking a lot about hurricane straps. What exactly are those? Why is that important? Yeah, so those are those those roof system to wall clips. They're little metal bracket looking things, and they are wonderful at resisting loads. They help tie the, the roof to the wall system, which is very, very important. Uh, and ultimately, you want what's called a com- continuous load path, which is roof to the wall, wall down to the foundation, foundation needing those good anchor bolts and good spacing down there that have their nuts and washers put on them. Um, so oftentimes that gets overlooked by some builders, uh, but the clips are the things that connect the roof trusses essentially to the wall top plate there. And uh, they look like kind of little squiggly metal brackets. You can go look them up. Chances are the big box stores uh, have some of those Simpson strong tie clips that are sitting in a whole section by themselves. Actually put them on my daughter's playhouse because one, they're really nice to attach stuff like that. Man, you could make that thing budge, um, which was really cool. Uh, but those are that's part of the load path. And there's, there's some variant different ways to do that um, as a whole. Um, sometimes I've seen construction use threaded rod all the way through the roof to wall to wall to foundation connections, but that's what those are. And we encourage them to be used everywhere. And you can, it is not a fun job, retrofit those you can get up if you have an open enough attic space to get to those connections and put in um, some straps and what about hurricane clips and straps connecting like a porch to the pilings or something like that as well yeah so so attached structures like porches or and and carports are extremely vulnerable right because wind can easily get under that roof system and it doesn't naturally flow around it like a, a, a typical house that's just a simple bluff body there so yes we would you know the the carport porches that's a vulnerable spot so if you're going to you know look for so especially if you're making a new build don't let don't let someone cut corners on that um and that's something that you can look at from enhanced anchoring down at the 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 column level too uh and up at the top with the roof to uh roof to column uh connections and it comes into play too with carports we've looked at this from with mobile homes Uh, sometimes the carports there's an enhanced connection pattern you can use but sometimes the carports take the roof system with it far under design winds and and that's a real problem so um, that's an area to really look out for and especially if you're doing a new build or or adding on in a a kind of a a, an addition perspective don't 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 let your builder cut corners on that one in a last question for you with national tropical weather conference we have all kinds of people that are interested in different aspects of hurricanes we have a growing number of people that are actually storm chasers or like to get out there and document storms and i know a lot of times we see you know palm trees blowing in the wind what what you know when we're out there on the in the field during a hurricane and we're filming things what kind of video footage of say houses and roofs and things like that could be important i know y'all have a state-of-the-art wind uh, wind lab which is extremely uh beneficial and innovative but what about video from actually in storms could that video be useful so so it certainly is from a communications element of of i mean look at shingle failures just just knowing where it was taken what time and Hurricanes, we have a lot better wind observations than we do severe convective storms and tornadoes. Um, that's useful for, for really all of us who have to, to send this message. Um, 
you know, and I know the, the storm chaser community hurricanes have become a little bit more uh, of that that thing to do now. I, I've done 19 in field research, and sometimes, man, I, I almost slept through, um, I think I almost slept through Ivan, I almost slept through parts of Katrina because I was so exhausted. Uh, you get a little old after a while, the wind and rain. But um, that kind of stuff, um, differences in construction examples, I, I think some of the, the most useful still photography for us in, in post-event has been, we had this almost side-by-side -side construction performance comparison. We have a great one from Harvey where we had a home built in the, the late 70s that lost its full roof system. So had a wall collapse next to a home that had been built within the last, I think, five years or so that was almost in pristine condition. So same wind exposure, same upstream terrain exposure, same characteristics, just vastly different results, likely from just an internal pressurization window failed. And, and off we go. Whereas the new built home with its window protection, the shutter systems, and all that load path did its job. And um, so some of those really from a communications perspective are quite helpful. Um, after the fact, the one thing with hurricanes, we have so many great wind records. We can punch those up in our wind tunnel and go run that storm. We did a Hurricane Florence simulation looking at the roof cover water and intrusion. I mean, we did 10 hours of, of the Florence cat one-ish wind of, and wind-driven rain on a home. And um, it's really cool to be able to do that. Uh, so we can take that information and we can go actually replicate it and turn knobs. That's the best part of being able to do that in a lab is I'm gonna hold all these variables <laughs> constant and I'm gonna change this one because I can't do that out in the field. Um, so that's one of the unique things about what we can do. But that's just an element from a communication perspective in resilience, what uh, we'd be interested or looking um, when we have examples like that. Thanks, Ian. Bill Reed's about to hop on a plane for Okinawa, and I just wanted to know what he should be filming out there. So uh, it helps. Tim, do we have any more questions that came in from online? I do have one more coming in from online from Barry. Um, and he wants to know about, uh, you know, like the flat commercial roofs that use TPO. Um, yep. How do those rate? They're a little less expensive sometimes, but yeah, how do so they rate? One of our biggest concerns with, with the low slope roofing mostly centers around the use of the ballast systems, um, where you have rock or some type of ballast that's put on, uh, on top of that membrane to hold it to the roof. We saw this a lot. And I know Bill's going to remember back in, in Houston and I, I can't oh, gotta remember. Alicia. Yeah, Alicia, I knew it. it was on the top of my tongue. We had so much window damage on the high rise, and it simply was from the use of the gravel built up roofs, where it's essentially a bitumen stuff we can put gravel on it. But you also do ballast roofs where you have larger rocks that sit down on a membrane to hold it down. We actually have been we've we've been working on this in the lab and it's remarkable what happens is that the ballast gets dislodged if you don't have a nice parapet to help remove the flow over that or basically create a bigger separation zone over the roof the membrane starts to bubble um, and there's enough uplift that it displaces the ballast but then it's like chicken or the egg right and then the rocks start tumbling then the wind catches the rocks and then it builds more and then all of a sudden you've got this membrane that's building about five feet above the roof and the rocks are taking off downstream at about 40 50 miles an hour and you you realize like oh my goodness if there's a building behind this one we're going to induce so much damage so the, our biggest concern right now is around some of those those gravel built up roofs the the, the ballasted roof systems um membrane low slope roofing the maintenance is so critical to keep its um, wing resistance elements together. Um, corroded fasteners for the, the fully attached stuff is a problem when water sits up there, those kind of things. But a well-maintained low slope roof can perform. 
Um, but the maintenance requirements are so much higher for some of those commercial structures that use the membrane roofs, the low slope roofs. I saw a lot of really bad older membrane roofs with poor performance in Ida across uh, St. Charles Parish, some of the strip mall type buildings that, that use those. And you could tell they were just old. They had, you know, things had corroded on them. They had standing water from time. You could see the staining. Um, and then um, the last piece of that is how the flashing around it that holds it on is attached. The flashing is actually a vulnerable spot. I've done some work on this. Where the flashing peels up and then takes the roof cover with it. So it's an element of the build. Building's a system, right? All the things on it have to work together. If one fails, it starts the cascade of damage and off we go and we've got some problems. Bill, go ahead and jump back in. We're getting close to the end with your final questions and thoughts. Yeah, I've got about 20, so I'll little it down to two <laughs> favorite ones here. Uh, how does one find a, a certified, fortified uh, builder or roofer? Uh, I've looked a little around here, and it's come up kind of empty other than the real high-end custom builders, which are out of the league of most people shopping yeah. a house. Right, right now, it, it's it's regionally driven, and we're trying to change that every single day. But you can go to fortifiedhome.org. There's a lookup tool where you can look up folks who have been trained by IBHS and gone through our programs. Um, there's also a Fortified Wise University that anybody out there can take. It's an online training in our Fortified program. But we have a lookup tool for contractors, evaluators, builders uh, who have been trained through the program. Um, yeah, I was. I helped my, my aunt and uncle look through them for South Louisiana. I know we have a few, definitely Baton Rouge, Homa, and that that zone. And of course, Alabama and the Carolinas are full of them because there's so much demand, right? So, and it's spilled over to Mississippi. So that corridor from Alabama to Mississippi to Louisiana is growing rapidly in terms of those roofers, builders who have been trained in the program. Um, and we see the same thing in North Carolina. But again, elsewhere, it's 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 problematic, right? You know, if you're a builder and you don't have a demand. Why, why am I going to do this? Why am I going to take my time to go do that? Um, but we've done all sorts of things, including the virtual training courses, things like that, to try to make this easier for folks to be able to do it. Um, but if you know your stuff, and this is what I don't want, that I want this to change, but if you know your stuff, you can walk somebody through that standard, um, especially a roofer that the training's pretty straightforward to do, and uh, you can get it done. I, I just encourage people to ask. You're, you're the customer. Um, yeah. Shop it around and don't don't let someone tell you you don't need it. That's that's my message to folks out there. If someone tells you you don't need it, you need to find somebody else. You're the consumer. That's your roof. That's your home. That's your family. Um, get what you want. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Harvey example, yeah, I think that, that was one of the most encouraging things I saw. And people raised, what do you mean encouraging? All these people had their houses damaged. The the newer homes built to, even though people say it's kind of a minimal code down there, uh, it worked. That was a pretty strong hurricane, and there wasn't uh, uh, significant damage to the built the code houses in the last few years down there uh, compared to the pre-existing stock. If you found that to be the case, to most places where we've got a major hurricane. It is. It is the 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 modern code built building, and that's commercial to. The performance difference, I think, is just going to become even more glaring over time. And unfortunately, you know, we have a, you know, I look at the, the most vulnerable construction era from a code perspective is really from about the mid-1960s up to about 1988. 1988 was when we first put in the, uh, the essentially a, a windstorm mitigation structure to the code. So we started to add some elements there. Again, after Andrews, when the good stuff really got in. 
but you have this vulnerable, you know, the rapid growth of track built homes in the late 60s, 70s, into the 80s have put us in a kind of behind the eight ball. Um, and unfortunately, you know, when you, we got to take the time when we do re-roof, that's our retrofit chance. So we got to have the ecosystem, the programs in place to take advantage of when that happens. That's the best way to get some of that era of construction into its place. I mean, I just look at my, my parents' house. They've they lived in the same house for, since I'm 42. I think they moved in a couple of years before I was born and they've lived there. That, that's in that era. Um, but my dad, you know, it helped that he had an engineering background and could walk, you know, can, you know his roofer through all this, but um, it's worrisome and, and our building stock is old and we just need to have that ready in those times. It's those sunny day, re-roof, those kinds of things. Because, you know, sometimes we wait till after an event, everybody wants stuff done so fast. It's a really bad time to try a new market. Um, so uh, again, I, I, it's a big challenge. I think we're up for it. Um, but I want people to understand codes do cover this retrofit permit, but it, it's really, let's get the codes in place. Let's get the enforcement in place for the communities of tomorrow. Um, and it's gonna shape, especially those places where we have rapid growth. Um, we need to protect folks. We need to get it done. Um, and that's kind of the story. And quite a well, well told story too, Ian. I really appreciate you joining us today. Fun talking with you about a challenging topic. Uh, Tim, what you got? Uh, Bill, thank you. And, and great insight, great questions again. Great questions from the, the viewing audience. We appreciate that as well. Thanks everybody who's been part of it. Um, how you, I, I can see you, you had the mic up, you're ready to ask one more question. And and so let me give you that shot for something else you thank want to you. go. Thank you. Last bit. question, Ian, are there stats on like return of investment just for the people that are just dollars and cents all the way? And you say, okay, building better is going to be 2% more. Are we seeing return on investment improved, uh, increased appraisal values? There's, a, there's some great even academic work on that. But one, I'll start with the, the National Institute of Building Science, NIBS. They did some mitigation studies that looked at that. You can go find it. Um, Kevin Simmons from Austin College has done some of the journal like economic analysis that really showed the cost benefit work here. Um, but one of the really cool studies that came out kind of right in the middle of the fortified growth in Alabama that Lars Powell did from the University of Alabama, we saw 7% increase in home value for fortified homes relative to the rest of the building stock. Now it's a little different now because coastal Alabama is all fortified and we love that. Um, but in those emerging markets, that increase in resale value does come into play. Um, and, and that's that's what's really interesting. Now, Kevin also compared in, in Oklahoma, he compared the more, the new builds and more to neighboring Norman with essentially no code. Um, and from a cost perspective, there was like a little bit of increase, but it was like within a two month real estate market fluctuation difference. So it was, you know, just let's just call it a wash at that point. Um, so there's kind of the nuts and bolts. There, there's great work out there. Um, and I, I encourage folks to just sit down and, and do it. Um, I heard somebody the other day give me a piece of really bad information that, oh, I heard that this costs four times more, that your home will cost four times more. I'm like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've actually ever heard in this space, and I don't know where it came from. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want it for your family and your peace of mind, do it. Do not let someone tell you no. Um, a lot of times there is a bit of added cost. It is not detrimental. Um, and it won't stand in the way if you if you plan you know plan it out and shop it around talk to folks. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate it. Yep. 
Dr. Ian Jumanko, thank you so much for being a part of the program today. Great program from the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. And we appreciate, we'd love to have you back because everybody's got a whole list of questions they'd like to continue asking. We can give another hour, but we won't put you through that today. So thank you, Dr. Jumanko, for being part of the program today. No, thank you everybody for having me. It's been a great discussion. It's always good to see see Bill and, and meet Hal and Tim, you too. Uh, it's been a wonderful discussion. Uh, I certainly want to, I would love to have some more and uh, thank you for having me. And I do want to mention Bill and I do serve together on the AMS Committee on uh, Engineering Resilient Communities. So we are working on this from a weather, uh, the weather enterprise perspective and how can we equip uh, all of us in the weather enterprise with the tools, a lot of the things I just talked about of what is the right information to get to the right parties and uh, to start to, to stop this cycle. Great information. Thank you. Again, we appreciate it. Uh, next week's program, 10 a.m. here on Wednesday, is going to be Dr. Hal Needham. Hal, you want to give us just a real quick, you know, 30-second preview of what you're going to tell us about next week? Yeah, we're going to be talking all about storm surge next week, what it is, why it's so destructive, and really starting to understand some of these processes and patterns that drive it. So you don't want to miss out. It's really one of the most deadly and uh, really deadly and costly natural hazards on Earth. We're going to be talking all about that next week on the National Tropical Weather Conference. Thanks, Al, Dr. Al Needham, our program next week. Go read. Thank you once again. Thanks to everybody who joined in today who asked questions today. Thanks to our sponsors, USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, the Weather Company, Visitor Brownsville, Black Magic, Weatherboy, Walmart, and the Port of Brownsville, all part of what we do here at the National Tropical Weather Conference. NTWC Live stands for National Tropical Weather Conference. We meet every year in the month of April on South Padre Island. We invite you to join us again in April of 2023. South Padre Island, come in person and meet all these folks that you get to see here on these uh, virtual meetings every week and meet us, meet everybody next time around. That's it for today. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next week at 10 a.m. NTWC Live. See you then. Loved what you've heard on this week's episode? Well, well, the answer is simple. It would mean the world to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and feedback. Spreading the word really is the best way to grow our podcast and achieve even greater things. Thank you. Thank you.